Good afternoon, everyone. This is the DOLW3 podcast, and this is July 1st, 2021. I have been away for a while. I did run into some technology problems, and my my phone quit. I lost my podcast, and um, I'm back in business now. So I feel rusty, though. So bear with me today. But we ha- we were reading before I lost my phone. Um, Call the Lady by Ovi Cruz, and he is present with us. As any time that we call on a saint, we as Catholics believe that they they are here, they are present in their readings. So, with that being said, this Call of the Lady, um, I felt called to read this to everyone because, you know, we have duties as lay people in the church, and with the current climate of corruption in the church, and the way the hierarchy has been handling things. Uh, we believe that the laity need to give them some help. So, um, and and some of that came from you know uh, all of the um, the sexual scandal with the homosexuality in the church. Uh, our group too has taken upon ourselves to read um, the book of the Rite of Sodomy, which is uh, five volumes of um, work that Randy Angles did. It took her 17 years to complete an investigative journal, she is. And she's going to be here with us today, too. And I want you to think about, you know, our obligations as a lay, a lay person in the, in the church, um, how we can help build a more robust church, and um, why we are to help. So with that, we're going to start with the canon law. I'm going to go back and read that since it's been a while since uh, you've heard this one um, when I was last reading the this book. Since lay people, like all of the Christian faithful, are deputed to, to the apostolate by baptism and confirmation, they are bound by the general obligation and they have the right, whether as individuals or in associations, to strive so that the divine message of salvation may be known and accepted by all people throughout the world. This obligation is also the more insistent in circumstances wherein only through them are people able to hear the gospel and to know Christ. You know, recently, um, I'm going to digress here, but recently I had read from uh, a little children's book. It was called The um, There Is No Such Thing as Dragon. And just to refresh your memory, the little boy sees a dragon in his room and he tells, runs to tell his mother, and his mother said, oh, there's no such thing as dragons. And so he tries to ignore that it's there, but it keeps growing and growing until it walks away with the house. Well, in a, that's how we liken the, the church. If we, if we allow um, the sexual corruption, the, um, the abuse of money, the abuse of power in the church by, by priest and bishop who have gone awry and we just ignore it, then we become part of the problem. And Ovi Cruz lets us know, as the call of the lady, that we, we have an obligation. And, uh, and, and with that can come, come things that, that aren't always so easy. We call it climbing up on the cross. Um, sometimes we have to climb up on the cross and, and um, suffer through some things. You know, we, all we have to do is look at Jesus and what he suffered and the wounds of Christ and what he did for salvation. And by all means, 
he um, charged us with um, helping, helping with that um, growing of the church. All right. Since lay people, like all the Christian faithful, are deputed to the apostolate by baptism and confirmation, they are bound by the general obligation and they have the right, whether as individuals or in associations, to strive so that the divine message of salvation may be known and accepted by all people throughout the world. The obligation is all the more insistent in circumstances wherein only through them are people able to hear the gospel and to know Christ. I thought it was important that I read that again. So now we're going to continue on. Um, We are on page, uh, let's see here, where did we leave off? We are on page 55 uh, in this book, The Call of the Laity by O.V. Cruz. By baptism and confirmation, these are the composite premise the double source of the above-mentioned deputation or delegation of the Christian faithful for, for their mission, with special attention given to the laity. In other words, it is their reception of the sacraments of baptism and of confirmation that enjoins and capacitates them, that deputizes or delegates them to act in propagating their faith and in building and rebuilding the body of Christ. In other words, the baptized and confirmed laymen, laywomen, and lay youth are by this fact alone already authorized and empowered to act pursuant to the dictates of their faith in Christ and the mandate of the church whose constituent members they are. Very important here. Um, I'm digressing because as of late, Um, one of the homilies I heard by a priest in the Flint area um, said that we are to go and get permission before we we do any sort of ministry. And um, sometimes ministries call for a 911. And we have to remember that. Um, Do we go ask permission or do, do we take the matter into our hands if God has called us to do so? Baptism can be said to be the opening sacrament in the initial acceptance and subsequent profession of the Christian faith. The sacrament confers the following to its recipient. First, the incorporation into the mystical body of Christ. Second, the spiritual standing in and canonical status before the ecclesial community. And third, the genuine equality of dignity and action, all the lay, religious, and clerical members of the church. It can be rightfully said, therefore, that baptism gives the basic potential for its recipient to act according to the faith he or she accepts and professes. Confirmation, on the other hand, can be considered as activation of the potential conferred by baptism. The very word immediately signifies that something is affirmed, certified and strengthened, all of which refer to the faith accepted and professed by the baptized person. It is wherefore the reception of the sacrament of confirmation that can be said to launch the recipient to testify, proclaim, and spread his or her faith to others. As before said, this is done either through evangelization, which is the proclamation of the faith to those ignorant thereof, in anticipation of their baptism and or through catechesis, 
which is the growth of the faith on the part of those who previously already accepted it. The reception of the sacrament of baptism, followed by the reception of the sacrament of confirmation, makes not only for a solid foundation for the above said deputation, but also for a forceful spiritual combination to do the mission. Again, this mission is complied with in general through the work of the evangelization and or catechesis. And again, these two general agenda are more concretely done by continuing the priestly, prophetic, and kingly actions of Christ. I'm going to digress here too. So I am... I practice the Carmelite um, way of life in the secular world, and you know we we pray and we always we always start with the Trinity. We believe, you know, I mean, it is the the faith, the Catholic faith, that God is three persons in one. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of them, although separate persons are one in the same. And, you know, um, the Father begot the Son. And the Son did everything he did on earth. He died on the cross. He um, went down into hell. And then on the third day, he rose again. And in that, rising again in the resurrection, he fulfilled everything that our Father had planned. And then he said, I cannot, I have to go to heaven, telling the apostles I have to leave in order for everything to be finished. And he sent us, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So with that, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is because to to have to ask for permission um, is like restricting the Holy Spirit, is like restricting Jesus. Jesus, um, you know, has a way of, and the Father has a way of touching souls at the moment that he needs them. And that soul can know right now that God is asking me to do something. Your soul knows it. Even though that your soul may, it may be contradicted by what's going on around you, your priest may tell you, as in my experience, um, that I'm going to take you off of the, um, the lector, I'm going to take you off the Eucharistic minister, because you're not obeying me. But I knew what God was calling, and I knew what was expected of me, that, you know, as a Catholic, as a baptized Catholic, as a Catholic who is confirmed, um, I am to carry out these things. And Bishop Cruz here um, validates that all the more for me to know that I have a job to do. We all have a job to do uh, when God calls us. All right. Wherefore, altogether, contrary to the common impression obtaining even among the Christian faithful themselves, the reception of the sacraments of baptism and of confirmation is definitely not mere ritual or ceremony, nor simply formalities or occasions for the gathering of relatives and friends, usually for feasting and merrymaking. 
Needless to say, there is much to be done in order to correct this pitiful mind frame and wrong value system born of ignorance or false understanding. Although the clergy and the religious <clears throat> have the obligation to inform and transform people, even if only in the particular regard, the laity is not altogether free from doing their own mandate on this particular big Christian liability. After all, the truth is, after all, the truth is that all Christian faithful are genuinely equal in dignity and in action. So what that is saying is that our souls created by God, we are equal in dignity and in action. God expects things from us when we have professed, you know, to be baptized Catholics, to be confirmed Catholics, to, to evangelize, that we are expected to. And we can't always have a priest right there and ask, is it okay? And we could have an errant priest. Not that, I sh- not that we should throw our priest away. We don't advocate for that. In the Carmelite order, we do not just dump souls. There, there may be souls who need to um, be treated or, or be taught differently, um, some teaching that they're missing, but we are to do what God has asked us to do. So we are to confront evil. When, it face, when we are faced with evil, we are to confront evil with the truth. All right, number four, they are bound by the general obligation and they have the right. Obligation and right go hand in hand, while a right may be waived, not exercised or demanded. An obligation must be fulfilled or complied with. And while a right may not necessarily carry a clear and direct obligation, an obligation cannot but have a right there too appended. The right, at least, goes as far as having the deputation or delegation to comply with the given obligation. That is why the law carefully and deliberately speaks first of the obligation and then of the right. This is most elementary way of understanding the particular sequence of obligation and right provision of the law. The mere mention of the term general immediately connotes some particular thing. This is why in order to immediately better understand this canonical provision, it would help to already point out that the laity, by virtue of their baptism and confirmation, have a twofold interlapping obligation, viz. that starts from the general level, level, Canon 225, paragraph 1, CIC, and that goes down to the particular sphere, Canon 225, Paragraph 2, CIC, which the law even ex professo qualifies as a special one. They are not two distinct obligations, but only one arching from the common to the particular. The general obligation remains the work of the evangelization of peoples in today's ecclesiology, and it is said that there are two evangelization, viz. the first and the second. The first evangelization is that already understood previously, for example, the proclamation of the gospel of those who have not heard of it. The second evangelization means the proclamation of the gospel to people who have already heard it 
and even accepted it. Yet, for one reason or another, such as advent of intense and extensive secularism, hedonism, and or materialism, the said people gradually become practically pagan. Hence, their need to be evangelized again for being reduced to nominal Christians. The truth of this unfortunate fact in the present modern world is beyond question and debate. It becomes self-evident by merely looking at how many people behave as if there were no God, no eternal truth, no afterlife. The special obligation refers to the evangelization of the temporal order. That is to say, there is a need for the gospel truths to penetrate and permeate the social fiber, the economic sphere, the political life, the social mores of the country, including the ways business and industry are conducted. The laity has this obligation as something special for the following reasons. First, They are once squarely living, acting, and working in the very midst of the temporal order. Second, they are also the ones immediately and intimately affected by an errant temporal order. And third, they are rightfully considered as the natural or professional experts in facing, animating, and ameliorating the temporal order within the gospel truths. I want to stop here and say that, um, you know, the laity are called the salt of the earth. Our Lord called us that. And why? Because when we put salt on something, um, it permeates, it goes throughout. So a priest, as we, as you know, we're already hearing, you know, that there, you know, that there's a shortage of priests. I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I believe there are priests all over the world, who would give anything to come here to the United States and um, and preach. Um, so I'm not so sure. I, I would like to, to uh, maybe dispute that a little bit and um, um, say uh, that I don't think there's a priest shortage. But by all means, there are definitely not enough priests in the world to do what the lay can do. When we go to Mass on Sunday, we go out into the communities we are, you know, we are giving people, by the example of our lives, a sample of Jesus and the gospel. And there are a number of laity. So, um, so that's why we're called the salt of the earth. We are also called um, leaven. You know, leaven is what makes the bread rise. All right. The laity are enjoined and expected to attend to and comply with their general as well as special obligations according to the condition and situation of each one of them. While the law is clear and explicit in pointing out the evangelization obligation of the laity in general terms and in a special way, it nevertheless realistically takes into consideration their indifferent circumstances of life. While this is also true for the religious and the clergy, the said consideration is much more in order when the laity are concerned in undertaking their own mission. Part 5. As individuals or in associations, the power of one, the declarative expression is not unheard, nor is it false really. There are certain individuals who basically single-handedly change for the better 
their neighborhoods, their communities, and or even the county, the country whose citizens they are. There were even individuals who changed the, the world as a whole for the better. These individuals, however, are relatively few and come to life far between. In the course of time, it is noticeable how divine providence periodically brings forth these lay individuals in the church. Two individuals who are immediately who immediately come to mind in the local scene are both members of the laity. One is a simple married man who died for the faith in a foreign country. For such a distinction, he was declared as the first Filipino saint. The other is also a family man who died for human rights during the height of martial law regime in the country. Fallen on a tarmac, a much-used holy rosary was found in his hand. There are certainly other lay individuals in the country who have become historical figures. Truly, there is power in even but one person gifted by God and called upon by history to make a better community, country, or world for others to live in. The law accepts and affirms this reality of lay individuals making better ecclesial community, a better secular society, and a better world. And I just want to say, God forbid, if our church makes policies restricting the Holy Spirit, restricting Jesus in the world um, through the lay. You know, that is that is something, you know, that we need to be particularly careful of, um, that, you know, the power that um, the clergy, if, if they're saying that we have to have permission to show Jesus in the society and to proclaim the Catholic teachings as we know them um, and as we are obligated to do by virtue of our baptism and confirmation, we, um, you know, hey guys, you really need to think about when you're telling people at the AMBO in a homily that you need to seek permission first. The power of many. This is the more common truth applicable to most of the lay faithful. This is also the reality that the law points out by the express mention of associations. This is also spirit of the times. Individuals inform groups, organizations, or movements so that bonded by one cause, they find strength in their unity. The same is true for the laity in the church. There is a long list of well-structured Catholic organizations, movements, and other similar groupings of the laity in the local, national, and international levels. The times seem to dictate both the necessity and practicality of this associated action of the laity, considering the following societal realities. One, the forces of evil have given birth to organized criminals, syndicated vices, and other errant group ventures. Two, the prevalent social maladies are both deep in rootage and extensive in coverage. Three, more and more people are becoming victims of these social-moral liabilities to their own perdition as individuals, the breakage of families, and the danger to communities. Organized lay actions are thereby called for to respond more adequately to such many and big concerted challenges. 
This can be more effectively done by lay-associated counter-advocacies. And that's what we see these podcasts. Um, we have a website going up. We write to our bishop um, to inform us on policies that um, may not be, um, may or may not be um, present in the in the diocese. Um, you know, but yet clergy are saying that they are. So we, you know, we write letters to ask questions about them. So we are using our voices. We are advocates. We advocate for um, voices who um, have been um, discredited or not validated by clergy in their church um, with, without true Catholic teachings behind what they are saying. Uh, we have a right to use our voice. Uh, it may be, too, that our bishop is, is um, really happy that we are doing these kinds of things in light of um, growing the church, growing, uh, upbuilding the church, as what Ovi Cruz tells us. He, uh, you know, said we are responsible to upbuild the church. And um, I think it's important that these podcasts and other lay groups come alive now, you know, be the salt of the earth that Jesus said that we are. The law is clear. It is immaterial whether the laity do their evangelizing and or catechizing mission either as individuals or in associations. What is imperative is for the laity to act accordingly by virtue of their baptism, by strength of their confirmation. By the reception of these two sacraments, the laity incur the obligation and inquire the right precisely to undertake the apostolate in and for the church. To see nothing, hear nothing, say nothing, and wherefore do nothing as well is a flagrant contradiction to what every Christian faithful stands for stands for in truth and reality. That is so, so important. I think we need to hear that one more time. To see nothing, to hear nothing, to say nothing, and wherefore do nothing as well is a flagrant contradiction to what every Christian faithful stands for in truth and reality. Um, I think we're going to stop here because I want to get into a little bit of the rite of sodomy that we've been reading from, the homosexual network in the American hierarchy and religious orders. I want to continue where I've been um, reading from. Anyways, Randy Engel, you know, she she is also with us here today, too. She's actually been listening to... Um, what we've had to say about Ovi Cruz and the laity. I wonder what her opinion would be about um, hearing what the lay are to do. And especially this last thing, um, I think she saw a lot of this in her investigating, the see nothing, hear nothing, and say nothing. Um, and what it did to, to many of the faithful who were abused uh, in the church. Okay. So we're going to start on page 852. This is volume four. And again, this is Randy Ingalls. Brario lawsuit filed and diocese reacts. And as I'm reading this, think about what we've been reading as far as with our baptism, confirmation, our obligations, and the actions we are to take as laity. On July 11th, 2002, 
Houston attorney Daniel Shea filed a civil lawsuit on behalf of Mr. Syme J. Brerio from the Superior Court of Worcester, charging Bishop George Edward Ruger with sexual molestation, including anal rape. Also named as a defendant in the case was the Diocese of Worcester and its ordinary as Corporation Soul. The lawsuit states that Ruger was so adept at enforcing the idea that homosexual acts were permissible that the plaintiff never connected the abuse with his lifelong history of psychiatric problems until recently he began therapy. On the day Monsignor Sullivan issued a statement on behalf of Bishop Riley, who was out of town in which the chancellor and the diocese officials had successfully repelled all attempts at extortion by Mr. Brario and had reported Brario's actions to District Attorney John Conte's office. The following day, Chancellor Sullivan held a press conference on the plaza in front of the chancery. Bishops Riley and Ruger were in attendance, surrounded by supportive diocese officials, staff, and priests of the diocese. Sullivan said that Ruger's accuser, had made up the story against Auxiliary Bishop Ruger. He stated that after a two-and-a-half-month investigation, the DA's office was not able to substantiate Brario's charges. Chancellor Sullivan also told reporters at the press conference that the Papal Nuncio in Washington, D.C. said there is no substance to the charges against Bishop Ruger. However, according to this court to his court depositions of April 9th and 10th in 2003, Bishop Riley said he did not speak by phone to the nuncio. Gabriel Archbishop Montalvo concerning the alleged charges until the morning of July 12th, 2002, the day of the news conference. Bishop Riley stated under oath that he had told the nuncio virtually none of the details of the case except to say that there was no substance to the charges. Mont- Montalvo reiterated to Riley the rules of the game. Only the Pope could remove an offending bishop from office, and thus far there was apparently no evidence to warrant such action. Montalvo asked Bishop Riley to keep him apprised of the situation. Obviously, since the papal nuncio had just heard about all the charges and had not conducted any independent investigation of his own, nor would he do so. He was not in any position to comment about the Brario Ruger case, much less opine that, as Sullivan claimed, there was no substance to the Brario charges. I want to digress here. Um, so as lay individuals... And I think of Randy Ingalls here when she's looking into this and finding out what an awesome lay person to go and do 17 years of work, investigative work. Can you imagine how many times she had to climb up on the cross while looking for the truth? And um, God bless her. And we also want to ask our bishop and ask... uh, Tell our bishop that, you know, one of the things we'd like to see in all the seminaries um, is a class 
that takes these books and dissects them with the young seminarians. That is something we'd really like, Bishop. Bishop Ruger then came to the microphone and said he was innocent of the charges. These allegations are totally unfounded. Bishop Ruger said what the allegations cite 40 years ago never happened. Bishop Riley also stepped forward and said he supported Bishop Ruger. On July 16, 2002, Bishop Riley issued a letter to the Catholics of the diocese assuring them that Bishop Ruger was innocent of the charges. The following day, Monsignor Sullivan was forced to take back the story that Brario's first lawyer, James Grabunski, had attempted to extort money from the Worcester Diocese for his client. The Worcester's Diocese and the District Attorney, Conte. When Monsignor Sullivan was deposed by Attorney Shea on July 12, 2003, he revealed how the District Attorney's Office kept him abreast of the findings of their investigations of the Brario-Ruger case. Sullivan, as diocesan liaison with Conte's office, admitted that he talked almost daily with the assistant DA, James J. Reagan, about the case, especially in year 2002. That is to say, that while Conte's office was in the process of carrying out an investigation, the diocese was given an inside track and made privy to important details. For example, Assistant D.A. Reagan told Sullivan that all the visitor log records from the Lyman School that indicated when and who took residents out of the state institution were lost. Monsignor Sullivan told Shea that it was important for the diocese to know that there were no records. Sullivan also said that Reagan told him that Brario was a very sick man, that he had heart problems, that he was HIV positive, and that he had a criminal record. He said he could not remember if he was told that Brario was an inter- intravenous drug user. Reagan, not under oath, later denied that he gave Sullivan the false information on Brario's HIV status. In fact, Brario, who is a homosexual, was found to be HIV negative. For the for the record, Conte's office never questioned Bishop Ruger about the charges against him. It is important to keep in mind that even though Ruger was only an auxiliary bishop under Bishop Harrington, he wielded enormous power in the Worcester Diocese. I have to digress here. So, you know, when we talk about enormous power um, in the hierarchy, you know, we have to be careful of the men who are in that hierarchy and of their moral character. And um, we also have an obligation to, to listen and to watch these things play out in the news media. It's very important that we don't bury our heads because lives are at stake. Children's souls are being lost. Seminarians, we have one right in our um, diocese here in Michigan, in the Gaylord Diocese, who went through horrible things um, because he spoke truth against a homosexual priest. Harrington, and that was just recently, Harrington was rumored to have a drinking problem that often resulted in Ruger taking care of the diocese's daily business. Also, Ruger and Monsignor Sullivan 
were in charge of the diocese archives, including the secret personal records of pederast priests. You know, I wanted to say, too, um, this is another digression. I was thinking back to when, when all these things came about again um, in the church and um, all the, the, the Pennsylvania sexual abuse crisis that really came out and how long it had been going on. And, you know, all of us Catholics were just, just stunned, you know. But, but we are, you know, we're told, that, you know, to just um, pray, pay, and obey. And um, I think uh, all of us just trust so much that, you know, the hierarchy is going to take care of it. And, and um, I have to believe that no, they're not, not alone. I think with our help as the lay, as we begin to point fingers, as we begin to do our own investigative work and to help um, build up those priests and bishops who cannot speak at least the truth right now for fear of retaliation. Um, But if they have groups of lay people that are supporting them, I think we'll have a very different hierarchy system in the future. And I think that's what Christ wants. Brario withdraws case against Ruger. In August 2003, excuse me, in August 2003, Brario asked his attorney, Daniel Shea, to withdraw from his case. Shea did so on September 12, 2003, after 18 months of legal work on Borali's behalf. The dramatic move paved the way for Brario to move for dismissal of his case in court. On November 19, 2003, Mr. Brario appeared before Judge Tina S. Page of the Worcester Superior Court to petition for dismissal of his case against Bishop Ruger and the Diocese of Worcester without prejudice, meaning that the case can be reactivated at a later date. Although such action is rare, rare, in a handwritten motion, Brario, without legal counsel, stated that he withdrew the charges voluntarily and without threat. He's, he stated Trooper Tom Green, a captain for the State Police Detective Bureau operating under Conte's office, to, had told him to take no action. He said that Green also assured him that the dismissal of the civil suit would have no effect on the criminal investigation that is ongoing. Diocene officials, including Bishop Bradley and Ruger, expressed their elation in a press release for the following day. As of June 2004, Bishop Ruger is listed by the Worcester Diocese as a moderator of the Curia and Vicar for Education. The assumption is that Bishop Bishop Ruger is innocent of the charges brought against him by Mr. Brario until he is proven guilty in a court of law. The problem for Bishop Ruger is that Worcester diocese officials have been acting as if he were guilty. It may be that Ruger is innocent of the Brario charges, but guilty of having homosexual relations with young men, if not minors, and we know for sure that he aided in the sexual cover-ups that have plagued the Worcester Diocese for years. Makes me think of what color is the blue bag. As for Mr. Brario, it has been revealed that he worked as an undercover agent for District Attorney Conte. Was the Ruger lawsuit a ruse to get Houston Attorney Daniel Shea 
out of the DA's hair. This case has more twists and turns than any piece of mystery fiction. Perhaps the Thomas H. Tazar case that is expected to be tried in Texas that names Bishop Ruger individually as a defendant will shed some light on the Brario case that has at least for the time being been withdrawn. We're going to end here and this we are on page 854. So with that, um, think about think about as lay people, think about the silence that has gone on in the hierarchy in the seminaries um, for fear, fears of retaliation. And so fear um, keeps people from speaking the truth. And how, how good it could be for the lay community in the church to wake up and to support Jesus in his efforts to um, right his ship again, right this church again. Um, he needs us. He needs us now more than ever. So with that, um, I'm going to say something um, about um, St. Therese, St. Teresa of um, Avila. She she just has things that uh, I think are... Um, just make make you really stop and think, especially if you're someone that um, has seen something, or you know maybe it's not something as bad as a, you know, um, a priest who is a sexual predator. But let's let's I'll give you an example of someone in our church um, who has now left the parish um, because she just couldn't take the priest anymore. But one of the things she wanted to do was start a devotion in the chapel about. Um, the sorrows, um, the devotion of the sorrows of Mother Mary, which is a very beautiful devotion, and it talks about the seven sorrows of Mary, and um, basically the priest told her he wasn't feeling it, and that you know it wasn't important. But what he didn't know is let's let's think about what he said there to this gal, and. You know, and you know, should the priest be fired for this? No, probably not. But does he need to be taught more about the faith? Very much so. Um, for one, you're snuffing out a little fire, something that could grow, something that could help other people who have been wounded and who may gain much from our mother by doing that um, that devotion. So you know, you might have something like that going on in your church where where you felt like, you know, betrayed. And when you asked questions, you weren't validated. You were shut down. These things happen. And we as Carmelites, and, and in the Carmelite brand, as we so call it, um, we, we always look for the soul, whether it's a soul that is erring, whether it is a soul that is trying to do good. God is there with that soul, and God loves that soul. And so sometimes... Um, we have to speak truth to evil. We have to do the right thing. And it may be a cross. It may be that you get shut down and things happen. But you don't have to leave the church. That is one thing you don't do. And we hope in these, in these podcasts and in our website and other lay communities popping up that Catholics no longer feel that they have to leave the church, that they have options. And, and the options are growing, and they are many. 
And it's, it's a good time to be a Catholic. It's a good time to bring life into the church. So St. Teresa of Avila was back in the 1500s. She was a Carmelite nun. She actually reformed the Carmelite church. And she had to go through, through a lot um, and was even um, expelled from her, from, her, um, from her Carmelites. So one of the things that she said that she referred to often, and I really like this, this is something that is a comfort to me, and I can see why it was a comfort to her. Be not afraid, daughter, for it is I, and I will not forsake thee. Fear not. When you're in some of your most... Um, difficult trials, and you have a devil on the right and a devil on the left, but you know God has called you. Um, what a good saying to have, to fall back on, that, you know, Jesus will not leave us. He will stay with us, even though things don't look right. You know, in the secular world, we think that, you know, that is division we think that, oh my gosh, that's too painful. I'm not going to go there. I want to feel happy and peaceful. So remember, when you stand up and you decide to, to do something when you've seen a wrong and to speak up even though others around you don't want to, remember that. Be not afraid, daughter, for it is I, and I will not forsake thee. Fear not. And another thing that she says, and I, and I like this, um, she says the devil's are God's slaves. The devils are nothing. If you are looking at uh, God and keeping his presence with you and, and always observing that he is present with you, devils are not a fear. Okay, with that, I'm going to say a prayer in close. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Lord, bless this podcast. Bless all those laity who have been thinking about speaking up um, to help them with their voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.